Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Today is our legal roundtable, and we have a lot to discuss with our panel of experts. And today, that includes Bill Freivogel. Uh, yes, he's a professor at the School of Journalism at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, but he's also a lawyer. Bill, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And we're joined again by Mark Smith. He's the Associate Vice Chancellor at Washington University. <clears throat> he also teaches a first-year course on the law, and yes, he too is a lawyer. Mark Smith, welcome back. Thank you. And our third guest this month is Susan McGraw. She's a professor at St. Louis University School of Law and the director of its criminal defense clinic and, yes, also a lawyer. Uh, Susan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, last month we discussed uh, what was then the very recent jury verdict against St. Louis County. The county police department had been accused of discriminating against a gay officer. He was told to tone down his, quote, gayness, and then he was turned down for 23 different promotions. A jury found that St. Louis County owed him nearly $20 million. But just before that verdict, as it turns out, lawyers for the county had argued that it would be okay if they had discriminated against him because Missouri law does not protect gays and lesbians from workplace discrimination. We thought this was big enough news that that day we had reached out to County Executive Sam Page for comment. He actually got back to us while we were live on the air in a statement that said this. Sam Page said, I'm horrified and surprised that argument was used, and I don't want to see it used again. I have a general rule that I don't manage departments, but this is going to be an exception. The state should pass the Missouri Non-Discrimination Act that I co-sponsored in 2006, so no one can ever make that argument again. And that brings us to this week. The county had hired Lewis Rice to appeal the jury verdict, and they made a post-trial motion. And Bill Freivogel, what argument did they make in their post-trial motion? The very same argument that uh, Page had said he hoped never would be made again. Um, and uh, that the argument that Missouri's anti-discrimination law does not protect uh, on the basis of sexual orientation. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they did have a paragraph up high in their very long motion uh, saying that, uh, you know, it, acknowledging that the, the county really didn't like this. And uh, but it was the it was a fiduciary obligation to taxpayers for them to take that position. Um, Do you I, think I, they have a point there? Do they have to take this position? I don't think they have to take this position. Uh, I, I, I think. I think you can make that argument. Uh, maybe they have a fiduciary obligation that goes beyond money. Maybe some of those taxpayers are, uh, uh, are have been discriminated against based on uh, sexual stereotypes about them. Um, and I think there's a way in which they could fight the twenty million dollar uh, <coughs> judgment without uh, claiming they should be able to discriminate. Uh, based on sexual stereotypes and sexual orientation uh, in the future. What would be a way to do that? Well, one, one thing is to settle, to try to settle the case. And I think, I think Page has said he, that you know, he supports settlements. Uh, one thing that I haven't seen referred to very much, uh, well, another thing is on appeal to ask for the punitive damages to be decreased. Another thing is, uh, one thing that should actually encourage a settlement is there's, uh, Missouri has a tort victims compensation fund. And so ever since 1988, the half of the half of a final judgment in punitive damages goes into that fund and doesn't go to the person who got the award. Uh, so if there's no settlement, a half of this money would go into that 
Victims Fund, and then it goes to to like workers' compensation or other. So Sergeant Wildhaber may have very good reason to come to the negotiating table. He may have very good reason to come. Susan McGraw, what do you think about this? Do you (coughs) think the county um, had other ways of dealing with this than making this argument that they just said they didn't want to make? Yeah, I think it's it's a situation of winning the battle and losing the war to consider what the fallout's going to be. I do think it's really a misnomer, though, to say we think this is protected contact or conduct. I think really what they're saying is is that there's a very finite set of ways to sue under the Human Rights Act, and uh, discrimination based on sexual orientation is not included. So I don't think that their argument is it's okay to discriminate against LGBTQI people. What they're saying is, look, this was not passed under the law, so it's not acceptable to collect under that theory. But, you know, that's not the theory that Wildhaber sued under anyways. So it's mincing here, and I just think the optics of it are really poor. Mark you know, Smith, what do you think I was, was going to say, I think the optics are poor. Having said that, you know, there's a difference between what's morally right and wrong and whether the law provides a remedy for it. And so, you know, there are lots of times when the law does not pro- provide a remedy or the remedy's limited. So there's something called the statute of limitations. And if you wait too long, you can't bring your cause of action. We're not saying that what you did was right. We're just saying the law is not going to provide a remedy for that. Also, I'm very sympathetic to the lawyers because as a lawyer, you never want to waive any possible defense. I mean, that I think that would probably be malpractice too. If you know there's something and you didn't waive it. Now, if your client instructs you, I think your client has the power to waive and say, I'm not going to take advantage of that. Yeah, and did Sam Page maybe make a mistake in the statement that he made where he said, I don't want to see this argument used again? I mean, he made a pretty quick statement after you guys raised the issue. Um, and uh, I I'm think not sure pu- he consulted with lawyers on that one. I think a public official uh, who feels as though a legal argument that's being made on behalf, on behalf of the entity he's representing, I think for him to state a, a moral position that he doesn't want to use that that legal argument, uh, I think that's that's perfectly appropriate. I mean, think think back to I, when I agree with think you. back to right. when Obama and um, uh, his attorney general Holder decided no longer to to defend the Defense of Mar- uh, Marriage Act uh, and to to argue against its being uh, its being enforced. Uh, it, I, that was taking. A moral position. They also had a legal, you know, a legal argument behind it that it wasn't constitutional, which the Supreme Court, you know, eventually agreed to. Certainly, with Southern officials, we wouldn't have felt like they had to take the argument that uh, segregation now and forever uh, was was uh, was the law in, right. the in Alabama. Between this and o- Obama, I think is <clears throat> there's going to be a financial repercussions for the county, and and I think some people would say. The sergeant's getting a windfall, and and while you're right, they could cut it back, and they could always settle. You know, um, I mean, my experience with negotiating settlements is you negotiate from a position of strength, and, well, it and seemed, they don't have one. Well, it's, well, it seems to me like they they the uh, the, the Lewis Rice argument actually is is weak because you know there was a case earlier this year, Lampley. Right. Uh, this is Lampley was. Um, was a state employee uh, who was 
uh, gay, and he filed a, a case with the Missouri Human Rights Commission on being discriminated against, and a woman who supported him also was, she suffered retribution. At any rate, uh, so the Missouri Human Rights Commission said, we're not going to investigate that because state law doesn't protect yeah. sexual orientation. And, um, um, and But the Missouri Supreme Court said, well, uh, sex discrimination definitely can, uh, includes um, sexual stereotyping. Right. So if, if this was sexual stereotyping, then the Missouri Human Rights Commission was wrong to throw out the Lampley case. He gets another shot at it. Well, this, this, is, this is what the argument that Wildhaber has been making, is that it was, he was sexually stereotyped. That is sex discrimination under um, both federal— But I think and, but his lawyer on, was saying things like, was saying his sexual orientation. So I think while you're right that— um, the, that other Supreme Court case um, said uh, sexual stereotyping, the idea that men are supposed to um, act and dress a certain way and women are supposed to act and dress a certain way. And if you treat them differently because of that, that, that the Supreme Court, is, Missouri Supreme Court said, we're going to include that with it. But, I, but they made a point of saying it didn't go to sexual orientation. And I think Part of the argument is they got jumbled together. I mean, and just to be clear, I mean, you know, as a lawyer, lots of times you make arguments that where it's like, yeah, this is not morally what I think is right. I'm not saying what they're doing is right here. I think the, you know, we should, we should have laws that protect based on sexual orientation. I mean, it's, it's a terrible thing to have somebody's livelihood or whatever taken away. But as a lawyer, you got to look out for your client, and sometimes. Well, so let's let's talk. We've been talking about the county here. Um, let's talk about Lewis Rice, the outside counsel in this case. I saw they did get a little bit of heat on Twitter. People were saying, "How could they do this?" Um, now, technically, they didn't have to take this case. They're not like the county where they're already involved. Um, Susan, how do attorneys wrestle with an issue that might be personally morally reprehensible to them, and balance that with the job that they've got to do? Right. Well, you know, I get that question a lot. I'm a criminal defense attorney, and um, there's not a client I would turn away. And and I'm sure some of the things they've done may have been (laughs) reprehensible. Maybe or maybe not. (laughs) You know, we are guided by professional rules, attorneys are. And and we have to learn those rules in law school. There's a separate bar examination onto those rules. And we have an absolute obligation to act in the best interest of our clients. Once you take someone as your client, you have to act in their best interest. And that's what Lewis Rice was doing. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think it's important to note St. Louis County cannot pay this judgment as it is right now. They do not have enough money. They do not have enough money. They are not insured up to the amount of this loss. And they're looking at cutting about $8 million in other services if they have to pay this bill. Um, So I think they have an obligation to try to get whatever remedies they can to mitigate the fact that they've taken a $20 million judgment. And I think Lewis Rice, as their lawyer, is obligated to make every feasible argument in order to protect them. Yet they're not obligated to take the case. Well, but there are ethical rules saying you're, you're not supposed to turn down clients just because you don't hmm. agree with them. I mean, well, well, but are they obligated after the client has already said he never oh, wants to see this argument made in court again? No, I, I agree with you there. If the client, but I'm not sure... The statement here 
was a client direction. Um, but I agree with you. If the client, the client has control <laughs> and the client can waive, um, um, you know, defenses or what, uh, we're not going to bring this claim, whatever, they can definitely do that. But I do think this idea that lawyers, first of all, as a criminal defense lawyer, you're defending the Constitution, right? Yes, I am. <laughs> Just happen to be these Absolutely. other people as well. But, but even these, the most heinous <laughs> crimes and criminals, they, they are, the Constitution says they get a lawyer, and so we can't say, well, I'm just not going to do that one. Uh, for those of you who are listening, if you have a question for our panel or a comment about this case, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. We did get a question via Twitter. Um, Howard asked us, does not asserting a complete defense invite a taxpayer suit? So say the county had had decided not to make this argument, is it possible that they could face repercussions from taxpayers who would say, you're not being a good steward of our money? How does who's that work? The, who's they? The law firm or the, or uh, the say county, county council? Yeah. Is it possible they could face um, legal trouble if they didn't make this argument? I don't know if it goes to arguments. I think if they refuse to continue to defend the suit, there's certainly an argument. I I'm not sure whether or not waiving your best issue on appeal would constitute not defending the lawsuit. Okay, and that's what a taxpayer suit would have to be focused on. It's more complicated than that, but yes. Okay, that, yeah, that was something I had not even heard of prior to Howard raising it, so I thought he had a good question. I mean, there. One, one other factor that could get involved here is so that, you know, this, I guess the county's got a self insurance uh, fund of a, that would. Uh, put about $2 million uh, towards this. They also have then insurance for $10 million. Uh, But who knows what that insurance company is saying? I mean, maybe the insurance company is telling the county, if you don't make this argument about uh, not covering sexual orientation, we're not going to pay the $10 million. That's a really good point. I hadn't thought of that. That's a possibility. You're exactly right. I mean, uh, they're going to look for any out they can get that they have to pay this money. And if that, that that could be what's motivating them here. So there's a lot of players at this table with, with <laughs> interesting interests that may not coincide with Dr. Page's political interests here. Um, Susan, you were first speaking to that point that um, that this, this is going to maybe cause trouble for him politically. But legally, um, he's dealing with a very complicated chessboard here. Absolutely. It would seem like, like there's a way out of it, that which is, hey, uh, uh, plaintiff, half your money is going to go to this tort fund anyway, right? So now we're already down to, well, let's see, half of the of the seventeen punitive, you know. So anyway, we're getting down close to what's covered by insurance. So you know, can't we get a can't we get can't to we a come settlement to the table? here? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there, you know, when you're doing settlement, you can do other things too. You could say, and we're going to give this amount of money to. Um, a gay rights group or uh, some advocacy or training within the police department in addition to your damages. There's also the issue of the attorney's fees. He's um, he's getting, in addition to my understanding, is he's getting a shared fee on this verdict. He's also filed for attorney's fees, which some statutes allow for, and then... That could be the, a lot more money. Yeah, and the judge has doubled the fees. You go with what's called a lodestar, which says an average lawyer at this level, doing this amount of work should get this, and then you bump it up or bump it down. And he's bumping it up, made the argument you should bump it up because they wouldn't negotiate with me, they wouldn't settle, they were being really difficult about it, and so I really had to work a lot harder 
But once again, it seems like he's getting then a, a second windfall from this shared fee. I'm going to go to the phone lines here. We've got Heath calling from Webster Groves. Um, Heath, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. Uh, yeah, this is Heath. So, uh, yes, I've been following this case a little bit. I follow uh, Sam Page on Twitter and some other people on Twitter. Um, I fully support uh, Mr. Wildhaber. I think that the uh, you know county police department was wrong here. Uh, I also think that it's really not – I don't think it's very ethical for the county executive and for – I can't remember the name of the lead lawyer for the county who both said that it's a reprehensible argument to make that – That was Beth Orwick. Yeah, if if homosexuality is, you know, I, I recognize it's a valid legal argument to say that homosexuality is not a protected class and, and gender identity is not a protected class in the state of Missouri, but you can't have it both ways. The county executive can't be going on and saying this is reprehensible and we fully support uh, homosexuals and, and people of, of alternate gender identities and then turning around and making this argument and, and having their lawyers make this argument in court to the benefit of the county. It's either, you, you know, it's either one way or the other. Okay, thank and, you. I mean, yep. Thank you, Heath. I appreciate your perspective on that. I think he's saying that the reaction that Sam Page had to this and that yeah. his counselor had for it, that's the real problem here, that that flies in the face of what they're now doing. Right, right. So, um, well, we need to take a quick break. We've been talking to our legal roundtable. That's Mark Smith of Washington University, Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and Susan McGraw of St. Louis University. We'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. And now back to our legal roundtable. That's Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, Mark Smith of Washington University, and Susan McGraw of St. Louis University. And if you've got a question about something we've discussed today, well, now the time now is the time to ask it. You can call us at 314 314- 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Mark Smith, I wanted to go back briefly yeah. to the Wildhaber case. Um, what in terms of federal law yeah. is happening that so, might affect this? So, Well, I'm not sure it would affect it because this case was brought under the Missouri Human Rights uh, Law, which is a Missouri statute. But there's federal... Um, lawsuits before the Supreme Court right now. The U.S. Supreme Court. United States Supreme Court, right. Um, related to Title VII, which is the federal law uh, related to discrimination and employment. And uh, there are three cases, Bostock, Altitude Express, and then uh, the RGGR, Harris Funeral Homes. First two deal with, does sex include sexual orientation? Next one, uh, the last one deals with uh, transgender. And, and so... This is a uh, issue Supreme Court has not taken up before. Um, lots of interesting questions. They've already had oral argument in it. I think it was in October, right? Yeah, first day of the yeah. term. And um, you know, the one of the kind of key issues is when Title Seven was p- passed, it was 1964. I mean, back then homosexuality was considered under by the American Psychiatric Association, I believe, was considered a, a mental illness. So. So you've got, there's this argument, well, they, of course, Congress didn't think it would include sexual orientation, but, and I think Justice Ginsburg raised this, uh, you also had this kind of madman era of how women were treated at work, and yet the United States Supreme Court, in, I think it was in the late 80s, recognized that sexual harassment, which might have been routine in the 40s, 50s, 
is no longer tolerated under Title VII. So clearly they weren't thinking about that when they passed the law. So, um, you know, you've got five conservative justices, but I think it was Gorsuch seemed to be asking a lot of questions, looking for a way maybe to include it. So uh, we'll see what happens. Bill Freivogel, any sense that this could impact this case? Well, yeah, I think it could. I think it could impact this case. Uh, I mean, the Lewis Rice motion uh, in in the Wildhaber case uh, says any day now the U.S. Supreme Court is going to have a decision on this that would have an effect on any day now any day now may, it may be later than any day now this is one in the that they tend to wrestle with over over a few over a few months um, but uh, so it could yes it could it could have uh, an impact but you know as, as Mark says what we think about as sex discrimination has changed so much since 1964 mm-hmm. uh, I mean it didn't include sexual harassment. It didn't include sex stereotypes, which is what we're right. sort of talking about in in this case. I mean, there was a, it took till the till the late eighties or nineties for the Supreme Court to say uh, for a law partner to lose her chance to be a partner because she was too macho and needed charm school. Uh, that that was sex stereotypes and amounted to a, amounted to uh, sex discrimination. Uh, let's go back to the phone lines. We've got Mark calling from Ferguson. Um, hi, Mark. You're on St. Louis on the air. Hi. I was just calling to get back to the politics on this and respectfully disagree with your last caller. I mean, first of all, poor Sam Page. He comes into this position and he gets hammered with a verdict like this that he did absolutely nothing to deserve. And I, I would say that I think Sam Page can have it both ways. What he's saying is, if I had been in control, nothing like this ever would have happened, and I certainly don't support it, and I will enact policies to make sure that it doesn't happen in the future. But I also have a fiduciary responsibility to the taxpayer, and while we will pay the sergeant restitution and we will support him and his movement and support, as you said, causes that champion this movement, it doesn't mean he deserves $20 million. It doesn't mean he deserves all of these punitive damages, especially when just before the case he would have accepted much, much less. Except, except that Sam Page said last month that not only that does he want Missouri legislature to pass a law, but he also said he did not want the county or his any lawyer on his behalf to make this argument in court again. So, so he is. So it does it does very I, much I, contradict what he said. No, I totally agree, and I think that he was speaking out of principle. But people are sort of nice, huh? When they turn to pragmatism. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, thank you, thank you for that comment. I think you do make a good point, even though I think Bill also makes a good point. This is a really hard issue. So we also heard from Jared on Twitter, and he says, "Is it possible Sam Page is saying I don't want to see this defense used again in the future? But twenty million is far too much to pay, and in a way, sending a message to Missouri lawmakers to add the sex discrimination provision to Missouri law." I would be surprised if Missouri lawmakers decide to ride yeah. to the rescue and, and fix this. But, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, one can one can continue to hope. And it, was, um, you know, it was very clear from his statement last month that he was referring to this case. Yes. Yeah, but, yeah. The other thing about this case is this Lewis Rice motion is um, filed out of an excess of caution. There's a, there's a question about whether there's even a final judgment because they didn't rule on, I think— um, the front pay and the back pay and all that kind of stuff. So so we may get a second go around of this when if the judge comes in with some kind of final judgment uh, and then they have 30 days to respond and if there's appeal. So um, I don't think we're done with this. Yeah. We'll continue going on. Well, hopefully we can discuss this again next month. Um, in <laughs> well, the meantime. Well, maybe they'll settle it. <laughs> yes, I mean, I that, think that's, that's, what, true. That, that's what people need to do is settle it and just – 
Everyone's going to come out of this. They, they, everyone can win if they settle, I think. Well, our panel is rooting for a settlement. Yeah. So um, I want to talk about something else that happened. Earlier this month, U.S. Attorney Jeff Jensen was our, on our show, and he talked about how his office is handling more criminal cases that previously were handled by the circuit attorney's office, things like armed robberies. They're now prosecuting them under the Hobbs Act, making them federal crimes. Here's what he um, gave us as one big reason for that. We have in the federal system we have we have more resources we have better resources so we have a low recidivism rate. Um, it, it's nothing I do, but the probation office here in the Eastern District of Missouri is the best in the country. They have about a 7.5 percent recidivism rate compared to national averages of 70 or 80 percent. That seems remarkable. It is remarkable, and they they do it by by getting people quality jobs. I mean, first they're they're often life issues. It's a holistic approach that need to be addressed, and then we have reentry courts for certain types of criminals, and make sure they have a job that's a that they can be proud of, and that's what really makes a difference. So they have about four and a half percent unemployment, again about 7.5 percent recidivism. That's U.S. Attorney Jeff Jensen, who was on the show last week, and he's pretty proud of the work being done by that probation department. As you heard me comment there, it it is an impressive statistic. Um, But Susan McGraw, as somebody who works with criminal defenders, is there a downside to the feds handling so many cases these days in St. Louis? Yeah, it's really become a problem for a couple of reasons. And, you know, I, I have to note, although it's anecdotally, People are not getting their cases picked up by the federal court and then getting funneled into probation. That's not what we're seeing. They're first being prosecuted. Right. And getting prison sentences. The reason that uh, some of these cases, especially cases where people who have previous interaction with the criminal justice system are caught with handguns or other types of guns. They're handling a lot of felon in possession cases. Lots and lots of felon in possession cases. And they are not funneling these people into the probation programs. I've worked with the probation office before. They are extraordinarily good. But that's not where these new cases are going. Um, The folks are being funneled into prison. um, And that's if they continue to be in state court, they wouldn't be in prison. There's cases where, you know, I can tell you a case where someone was pleading guilty to get probation in state court. The feds walk in and arrested him, and he ended up in the federal penitentiary. For how long a sentence? I mean, are we talking years? Uh, Yeah, we're talking years. Yeah. Um, So I think that's one problem. Another problem is that the federal public defender's office is swamped. Jeff Jensen's office is getting new attorneys uh, on a regular basis from Department of Justice. The federal defender's office is not getting the support that the U.S. Attorney's Office is getting. The attorneys there are swamped, and because we have no central federal holding facility for people charged with crimes, the clients are all over the place. They can be two hours away. They can be an hour and a half away. And it's really put a strain on the Federal Defender's Office. Uh, Bill Freivogel, is this a big problem, the fact that we now have the feds taking such a proactive approach on St. Louis crimes? Yeah, I think it is a problem. I mean, I think that crime in general is something that should be handled at the local level, you know, unless you're talking about something that involves a 
uh, interstate and federal uh, federal crime. Um, and I, you know, I mean, we're we're living through an era when there's lots of criticism about people being incarcerated for too long a time for uh, for something that's not necessarily a violent crime. I mean, having a, having a gun is maybe it's short of a maybe it could lead to a violent crime, but it's not itself. Yeah, exactly a violent crime. So I, you know, I think that something is leading to a lot longer sentences for people on these kinds of crimes uh, is a problem. And yet, well-meaning progressives, the same people who'd like to see more reforms to the criminal justice system so people are getting shorter sentences, these are people who would also like to see um, gun cases being taken seriously, which is something Jeff Jensen is doing. Where's the balance on this, Mark Smith? I'm more ambivalent as somebody who lives in the city and worries (laughs) about crime, and I know you do too. uh, Yeah, so, and, you know, the city... Uh, prosecutor's office right now seems to be having some some issues, and so um, so they're maybe just picking up some of the slack. Yeah, and the, one wonders if that's what's happening. Also, and this is not legal, but I mean, when was the last time you heard a political appointee uh, talk about some good result and say, "I can take no credit for it"? I mean, <laughs> um, I almost fell over when I heard that. I mean, you never hear that. So, but the problem is that we're not getting the results. I mean, if if locking people up for longer prison sentences was, was effective, we would expect to see a decline in gun cases and violent crime, and we're not seeing it. It's interesting that both St. Louis County and St. Louis City have elected reformer prosecutors yeah. who are really right. taking a second <clears throat> look at these cases, and yet, at the same time, because more and more cases are being handled by the feds, it almost cancels out what the voters have, have asked for in some of these cases. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And you, and you also have to worry about so where does this lead i mean do we really want the the trump justice department to be taking over local kinds of matters i mean i they they've been expressing interest in dealing with uh homelessness and yeah yeah in california and but you don't see of, a difference between like the drug cases and the gun cases in what sense well that i mean i um I, the idea of locking people up because of drug issues that seems like it's a public health problem and should be treated differently but but you'd still like to see hard prosecutions on the gun stuff maybe <coughs> mark is that well if you're telling me and you would know more about this susan but if you're saying they're not involved in crimes they just happen to have a gun there are situations where people are stopped and searched found to be in possession of a weapon they're, they're handling a lot of those cases and right what, now. Are, yes. are they true. on probation or are they just found to have a weapon? So it's, it's felon in possession of a handgun, which means that a person who has a conviction that's a felony either from state or federal court is not allowed to handle uh, or what? possess a weapon. And the simple fact of possessing the weapon is enough to kick in this new federal charge. Mm-hmm. And, and whereas that might in the state court have been, sure, punishable, in federal court, the punishment's much more severe. Uh, we're talking to our legal roundtable. Uh, that was just Susan McGraw of St. Louis University School of Law. Uh, today we also have here Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale and Mark Smith of Washington University. We need to take another quick break. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk about what's happening with public defenders in the state court system. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. 
Welcome back. We're here with our legal roundtable discussing discussing the hot judicial news of the month. And that roundtable is Mark Smith of Washington University, Susan McGraw of St. Louis University School of Law, and Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale. Um, before we get to a few of the maybe sexier cases on our agenda this month, I do want to talk about something that I think is terribly important and, and connects to some of the things we were just talking about. And that is the state's lack of funding for public defenders. It has been in the news. Um, because the Kansas City Star just did a really remarkable long series looking at this and the implications that it had. Um, and in this series, they're saying that the uh, public defender's office statewide received $51 million last year. Leaders say it needs to double that amount of spending, which would be a huge increase. And yet we have more than 4,000 people on wait lists trying to get public defenders. Uh, Susan McGraw, how big a problem is this at this point in Missouri? It's a very, very big problem. This has been a problem for years. Um, former director Michael Barrett, who unfortunately is leaving Missouri, has been involved in efforts to increase funding. Cat uh, Kelly, who was before him, tried to increase funding. And, and they're just unpopular people, and we can't get any traction. Um, and when you say they're unpopular people, you mean public defenders in general? Well, um, I mean criminal defendants. Yes. <laughs> I know some very popular public defenders. <laughs> but, but there's only so many hours in a day. And what's, what's happening now is that they're starting to look at the licenses of people who are employed by public defenders. There was a public defender in Columbia who was sanctioned. So... You know, they're between a rock and a hard place. If I say I'm not going to take the cases, I might lose my job or I might have a right. judge sanction me. That's but if I terrifying. Take, right. No. But if I take the cases, I might lose my license to practice law. Mm -hmm. um, judges have, have not been as sympathetic as one might hope to the plight of the public defenders. And unfortunately, the clients are suffering, but public defenders also. It's hard to find a public defender who has significant experience trying cases. And that's problematic. They uh, noted in this Kansas City Star series that the Jackson County Prosecutor's Office has three times the staff of the Public Defender's Office, which kind of gets to what Susan was talking about, about the feds, that they've had this big increase in, on the prosecutor's side, but they haven't kept pace on the public defender's side. Bill Freivogel, should that be equivalent? Should we, we be looking for similar size budgets? Well, I think it should be much closer to equivalent. There have been some states uh, on the East Coast uh, that states and, and uh, small jurisdictions that have required equivalents. I think New York uh, was one of them, maybe um, uh, either Massachusetts or Connecticut. So yeah, I think there's a good argument there. I mean, I think the, the Kansas City Star's conclusion that every day Missouri is violating the Constitution right. in the way they operate their public defender system is correct. And, uh, and uh, you know, we get 75,000 new, new cases at, uh, for the public defender every year. There's only 340 of the public defenders. That's 200, that's 200 per person. Mark Smith, what's it going to take to actually yeah. fix this? Well, and first, I think, and this is, everyone's been saying this, but this is not like just a, a choice the government makes, like, we're, oh, we're going to build a park because that's nice. This is a constitutional mandate. We have to do this. It's required. But we haven't been doing it. So right, we're we kind of getting away with and, it. And I also think just what what Susan's saying, you know, I used to work at the law school and the um, the kids I knew who went out to become public defenders, 
they're, they're true believers. They want to do the right thing, and they're and like we said before, and they're they're defending um, the Constitution. They're def- defending the the weakest, the least powerful among us, and they're doing it because they think it's the right thing to do. They're not doing it for the money or anything. And then to make them underpaid, overworked, and then to say, oh, and by the way, we might um, we might bring you up on ethics charges. I mean, that's triple. We I remember we did. The show, like, I don't know, 10 years ago. Remember when Bob McCullough was I on? And, and, and he took the position that, oh, Public Defender has a lot of resources. They're, they, if they would do the right thing, we'd be fine. And, and, and Bob McCullough, of course, was, was former, the prosecuting yeah. attorney of St. Louis County who did lose re-election, yeah. in part maybe because of that attitude. It could have been, yeah. Could have um, been. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I think people don't know, you know, lay people don't know. Uh, I'm in the profession. I don't really know what's going on. I think having, you know, some kind of, I saw Shamit Dogan, who's a Republican, saying this is a problem. So you've got some Republicans saying, maybe you put together a, a kind of panel to do a report that brings together lawyers who are on both sides and who can come together with some reasonable... Well, um, Susan, do you think that could could start to get us there? It it could. You know, I was really heartened by something that Tim Lomar from St. Charles prosecuting attorney said, which was, we need to find a way to move these cases. I think that is the first conciliatory statement I've heard from a prosecutor, because we really didn't hear it from Bob McCullough. And even Jay Nixon, who's a former prosecutor, when he was the governor, he took money out of the public defender budget that the legislature had thought was necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be in, I think it's a great idea. I'd be interested to see who was on the panel, yeah. but but this has been in crisis, and I think with these ethical problems, this is really coming to a head. Because everyone wants more money for education, for safety, but not for constitutional rights. And so you need to give the politicians an out, I think, to say this is what they said. You know, there have been so many studies about this. I mean, there's really? no question but that Missouri is like at the very end of the – only yeah. Mississippi is behind us on how much mm-hmm. we spend on this. Or how and little we spend how on little, it. Right? Yes, right. And, uh, I mean, there was a lawsuit. ACLU sued. There was a there was a settlement that was in the works. And who, dis- who objected to it but the Missouri Attorney General, Eric mm-hmm. Schmidt. So what about that? So these are really important issues. Um, However, I did promise our listeners that we would get to a few of the sexier cases here at the end. So um, I do want to talk just briefly about this lawsuit that St. Louis City and St. Louis County filed against the National Football League. Talk about excitement. Um, They're saying that the league strung them along and talked them into spending all this money to try to save the Rams when the league knew all along they were moving the team. Now, I will say this case had always struck me as quixotic, but they won a big victory this month. Um, Bill Freivogel, can you tell us about that? <laughs> well, yeah, the Missouri Supreme Court seems to be on on the side of the of the lawsuit. You know, they've they've said that that, that this gets the case gets to stay in Missouri, and uh, now they say that uh, the telephone uh, records of the owners of other teams. Uh, should be turned over in discovery. Uh, so are we going to get to see uh, which NFL owners are, are saying bad things about St. Louis to each other? <laughs> I guess we'll see who, who they call, who, who who talked to whom. We don't get to see their text messages. We just see who sent one. Is well, that I'm not how sure this is we're going to get to see anything because <laughs> just because it's discoverable doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be um, 
you know, where we can go down to the courthouse and look Won't be open to the public yeah, in a open. civil case. The yeah. other thing that happened was they decided to have it in a trial court rather than in front of an arbitrator. That Ar- seems huge. Yeah. Arbitrators, yes. uh, for your listeners, when you sometimes when you have a contract, uh, Susan and I enter into a contract, we can agree that if there's a problem with the contract, rather than going to court, we're going to go to an arbitrator. Maybe we make Bill our arbitrator, and then we are bound by his decision. And um, and there are reasons you might do this. Expertise, it's quicker, it's it's more private. And the fact that they went outside the arbitration clause, I think that's that makes it much more public. So they're not going to like that. Either. So is there a chance that St. Louis could actually win this case? Well, uh, win or win a, win a settlement that I mean yeah. this is this certainly we're not getting the Rams puts back. A, we're not getting the Rams back. We don't back. want yeah. the Rams yeah. back, Mark. <laughs> but but you know I think they have a good I think this uh, the city and the Convention and Visitors Bureau has a good argument that we were strung along by yeah. by Cronkey and by the end by uh, Goodell and and other owners thinking that we really had a chance of if we built a new stadium uh, we would get be able to keep the Rams and. Uh, you know, we spent $16 million to do that, and they never, they already had made their decision. So I think it's a decent, a decent uh, claim. Well, it's good to know there might be a <laughs> chance. Uh, there were also a few Sunshine Law cases in the news this month. Um, the first one is a really bad loss for the University of Missouri, and it came in a case filed by attorneys for the Beagle Freedom Project. They believe in animal rights, and they sued to get records about the care of dogs and cats being used in research there. Um, the, the university tried to give them an $82,000 bill for these records, and the judge found that these records were not difficult to access. He said it should have costed more like $8,000. He ruled that the university had violated the Sunshine Law. Uh, Susan McGraw, how blatant is this case? Well, I, I think actually it's pretty typical for what we've seen, and it's a way of constructively denying people access to the records without saying I'm denying you access to the records. Right. And these big bills made a lot of sense, you know, in the time maybe when I, when yeah. we started when practicing, we right? When Mark and I, machine. right? Yeah. And and they had to tie up a staff member for days on end. But now that's not the case. You can just pull them out electronically. That's that's what we assume. Yes, they I think they said with the flip of the switch. Yeah. Now you're going to want to review some records maybe to make sure. But even with that, I mean, these records, a lot of them are. Um, it, it seems like they're pretty pro forma kind of just we want to know this and it there's Very not going to be any attorney client privilege stuff in there nobody's going to need to go through them well so the judge's opinion in this case is is positively blistering yet um the university of missouri only has to pay a thousand dollar fine bill freivogel <laughs> does the missouri sunshine law need more teeth here to dissuade this kind of stuff you know i actually think i mean i haven't i haven't read the teeth lately but i think that i think there are teeth but the judges have not have been very unwilling to to uh to you know say that okay this public official is knowingly violating the sunshine law and therefore has to pay a big a big fine and so if it's knowing there could have been much more than a thousand yes and, and I mean like there, there was a there was a case uh, a couple of years ago involving some of these multi-jurisdictional drug task forces where 
um, uh, Roland, uh, yeah. you know, the attorney, the libertarian uh, Dave attorney, Roland. Dave yeah. Roland, won, uh, you know, won, a, won a judgment against the St. Louis uh, task force. And, and the St. Louis task force had claimed they didn't exist. And then it turned out the person who was claiming they didn't exist had been getting all the all of the federal grants for the task force. So and then the, the judge thought that he well, but maybe he wasn't knowing. Uh, <laughs> come on. <Yeah. laughs> it seems like these cases are so hard to win. Yes. Even if you win, you don't win much. There's another Sunshine Law case I'd, I'd like to get uh, your take on. This one was filed against the St. Louis police by the MacArthur Justice Center here in St. Louis. Its client is an activist named Philip Weeks, and he had sought detailed records about traffic stops by city police officers. The city said it couldn't help him. It said those records are being held by the Regional Justice Information Services Commission, better known as Regis. It's kind of a database that holds law enforcement records for agencies around the metro area. And then when Weeks went to Regis, he was told they were not the custodian of records and are not required to accommodate sunshine requests. Is this just a runaround that lets the St. Louis police get off the hook from turning over records? Mark yeah, Smith? I think, it's a, I think it is a runaround. And when when I was on the police board for the city, I, I thought like the chief, the, the Regis board was like, you know, the chief of the city police and the chief of the county police and a few other people. So it's a it's a group that's just holding records and sharing uh, information. I, I, I don't understand why the city police are, are holding would, this up. Would hide behind that. Yeah. The Susan? attorney general's office for years has done a survey and published the results on who's getting stopped and what's the race of the person who's driving the car. You know, that information's been released by other counties for years and years. And unfortunately, what it shows is that that there is definitely a racial bias towards stopping um, people who are black. Um, so I think I tend to think also that this is a runaround. I think one of the things here, they're trying to get it by um, ID number of the officers, right? So that's the new, but the, those are those are public. Um, so You'd think it should be, yeah. although they, they don't seem to have any luck getting these records. I mean, it's just a runaround. It's, it's totally a sham. Now, there's another Sunshine case, uh, Sunshine Law case that was in the news this month. And this one comes out of Raytown, which I guess is more over by okay. Kansas City. And it seems like this is a case that could have some big impact statewide. Uh, Bill Freivogel? Yeah, well, this is where the, uh, a clerk was denying some records uh, based on the possibility of future litigation. And, uh, you know, basically the court said that you, you, you can't use you can't use that excuse where it's just like theoretically possible there will be some future lawsuit. Now, I, I will say, as a journalist, I can't tell you how many times I have been denied records for that exact reason, and it always infuriated me, yeah. but it never occurred to me that they're just not allowed to do that. Um, what is this law saying? I, I guess, what is this ruling going to say going forward? They can't use this at all, ever? I don't think it's saying they can't use it ever. If they, I think if there is litigation ongoing, yeah. but I think they, they can't they can't use the excuse that, well, you know, we expect there could be some future litigation, you know, some, the, you know, just theoretical litigation that hasn't even been filed. And I mean, I think part of it, too, is is meant to preserve the, you know, intellect, uh, the, the, like, legal analysis, legal arguments, not public record facts. I mean, uh, just because you sue somebody doesn't mean then you're not able to get public records because there's a lawsuit. So we so, might not be able to get records from the attorneys, but we yeah, should still yeah, be able to get some, other records. Or maybe even maybe even some conversations about whether or not to settle this case, you know, 
so the minutes of the meeting where they talk about what they might do in terms of settlement, I think that should be protected. But like this, this Raytown case was about, as I recall, was about uh, getting some information on an intersection where the person seeking the information, one of their relatives had been killed in a traffic accident, mm-hmm. and so yeah. they, you know they they wanted to look into this. And you know, shouldn't a public shouldn't a citizen be able to do that? You know, at least some of these some of these uh, court decisions have pointed out that the Sunshine Law says it's supposed to be construed liberally right. to try to make the the records available. I mean, city officials too often can do not do that. Do that, yeah. And so now we have a ruling that says that they are going to have to be better about that at least. Yeah, pay attention to that. Yeah. Um, we also did get just a little bit of information. We were wondering, uh, does the law need more teeth? It turns out in Missouri, a court may impose a civil fine of up to $1,000 for knowing violations of the Missouri Sunshine Law or a civil fine of up to $5,000 for purposeful violations. So, Bill, I think you were saying it's just hard sometimes to get them to get, hit that $5,000 fine. Right. So, okay, well, um, our legal roundtable this month has had a lot to talk about, and we want to thank them all for being here. Bill Freivogel of Southern Illinois University Carbondale, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Mark Smith of Washington University, thank you for being here today. Thank you. And Susan McGraw of St. Louis University School of Law, thank you so much for your perspective on, on all these issues we were talking about today. You're welcome. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.